as you're getting settled, let me just ask you a question, and it's kind of a question about questions. Have you ever noticed how much more, how much more effective it can be and how much more it makes you think when somebody asks you a question rather than just telling you the answer, when they get you to think about it for yourself, if you're up against the problem of some kind and you're trying to solve it, sometimes it's nice if a person will just come along and give you the answer and solve the problem for you and you just move right along. But you don't learn a lot from that. You don't really move any farther. But when someone comes along and says, all right, what's wrong with this situation? What's really the problem here? What's gone wrong? What do we need to do to solve it? How are we going to make this better? What can you do? Like you kind of had to think about that. And then you get engaged and you learn and you grow. Now, Jesus is a master teacher, and I think that's probably why we start hearing so many questions in the teaching that he offers. I don't know if this even, if this even struck you or not as we listened to that reading just now, but in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, and also in the readings that are coming next week and the week after, Jesus asks a lot of questions. And the first question that he asks right here in this reading is a crazy deep question. It's one of the deepest questions you can ask. Jesus asks, what's the meaning of life? This, this is how he gets at it. He acknowledges that we worry about things. We worry about what he calls food and drink and clothes, but which we could also extend to include all kinds of other material things that we worry about. Houses, cars, boats, toys, bank accounts. We worry about all these things. And then Jesus says, you're worried about those, but isn't life more than that? What's life really all about? Is that what brings meaning to your life? Or what is the meaning of your life? Let me tell you a little story I heard once. It's a story about a guy who was a recent college graduate. He had just been fortunate enough to land a job that was actually in his field, working for a financial services company. And he was talented and smart. He was ambitious, hardworking, and he started to make good money for himself. And he was getting promotions and getting more and more opportunity, bought himself a brand new car. And one day he drove downtown to an appointment and he pulled off on the side of the road downtown, kind of parallel parking spot on a one-way street, right side of the street. And he pops open the door of his car. And fortunately, he didn't get out of the car any faster than he did. Because he popped open the door of his car, another car came blowing by, not paying any attention at all, rips the car right off the car, just takes it right forward this way. Hit and run accident, the car just keeps on going, wasn't going to stop for anything. And the guy jumps out of the car. He's furious, right, screaming and yelling. It's his brand new car. And he wants to find a policeman, file a report on this. And there was a policeman nearby who saw the whole thing, I think directing traffic or something in the intersection. He comes by, fine, he wants to take a report, but he has to kind of redirect the guy's attention. So I don't think you saw the whole accident, sir. You lost your car, but have you noticed you lost your arm in that accident? Right, so the guy looks down at where his arm used to be and his sleeve is ripped off. And all of a sudden, he's not so worried about the car door anymore, right? He's got insurance for the car. He's going to be fine. Now he's worried about what he really lost. He goes, oh no, my new watch. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. You're so kind for laughing. Thank you for being Christian people. That's great. It's not a true story, of course. But it is true that we often get mixed up in life in the things that we worry about, right? We're probably not usually worried about the things that are really the most important things in our life. And when we are mixed up and not necessarily worrying about the most important things, I think it's a little bit of a sign. It's a little bit of a symptom to us. It indicates to us that we're not only mixed up in our worrying, we're mixed up on what we think the meaning of life really is for us. Let me ask you a question. How clear do you think you are on that? How clear do you think you know this is the, this is the meaning of life? And let me tell you, it's important that we get a clear answer to that question. I, I think if, you don't, if you're not clear on the answer to that question, I think at least two things are probably going to happen to you. 
on the one hand, you're going to experience a lot of frustration. Your, your anxiety and conflict and frustration levels are going to go up. And it's because you're not going to know what you're really going after in life. You're going to feel conflicted loyalties. You're going to be switching things all the time. What's the most important priority in my life this year, this month, this day, this minute? And it's going to cause this feeling of conflicted priorities in your life, and you're going to feel frustrated. The second thing that I think will happen, if you don't have a clear answer to that question, is that you will probably default to thinking that money is the meaning of life. It's one of the things in our society anyway that competes most strongly for our allegiance and for our loyalty and for becoming important in our lives. It's not only our society, and it's not only now. This was true in Jesus' world too, and I think it's true around the world. And it's why Jesus took, this, took the time to call out this one thing as a competitor with God for being the most important thing in our lives. I want to just show you another verse here. This comes from Matthew chapter 6. It's actually the verse right before the reading that we started today. It's the end of last week's reading, and it's, it's the context. It's how Jesus sets up asking us, what is it that we're worried about? And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, right? You're going to be conflicted. You have divided loyalties. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he hits the nail right on the head. You can't serve both God and money. Not at the same time, anyway. You might find yourself switching back and forth. But if you're not real clear on what you think the meaning of life is, chances are you're going to default to thinking that money is the meaning of life. Let me tell you another story about this. True story this time. It's a story about a guy who actually is in the passage that we read today. A guy that Jesus talks about. His name is Solomon. He was a guy who lived almost 3,000 years ago, and his story is told in the Old Testament. And he's a guy who tried to fill the emptiness in his life with money and material things. And the more he tried to fill himself up, the emptier he got. And it's a tragedy, too, because his story started out really, really well. Solomon, like the guy in the story I told earlier, had a lot going for him. But he wasn't just in a good job. He wasn't just getting other jobs. He was in charge of a whole country. Solomon was a king. He was the king of ancient Israel. And when he became king at a young age, he prayed. Maybe you've been in a place like that where you were overwhelmed with responsibility, with a task or a goal in front of you. Solomon was driven to his knees in prayer. But Solomon didn't pray for God's help to gain more wealth. He didn't pray for more power, more success, bigger boundaries for the country. I'm sure he would be happy with all those things. But what Solomon prayed for was wisdom. He just said, God, make me wise. God, make me wise so that I can rule this country, this people of yours, in the way that you would want me to. I think you can tell a lot about Solomon's heart by that prayer, by what was seeming most important to him that he asked God for. And God granted him wisdom, and it turns out that in Solomon's life, he actually gained all the things he didn't pray for. He grew in power and wealth and the boundaries of the country and success and control. He gained all those things, and they weren't bad things. They were blessings from God in his life, as a matter of fact though he did allow them to entrap him later in his life. You see, kind of in the early to mid part of Solomon's reign, first he built a temple for God in Jerusalem. Big, beautiful temple right in Jerusalem. Uh, a big, beautiful symbol that God was at the center of his people. But there's this little verse in the story of Solomon's life that tells us how he kind of got off track on this. It's a verse that occurs right at the end of 1 Kings chapter 6 and actually right at the beginning of 1 Kings 7 too if you ever want to look this up yourself. And it tells us there in that verse that Solomon spent seven years of his life building the temple in Jerusalem, God's temple. Now life expectancies then aren't what they are today. 
And even today, seven years is an important part of your life. If you spend seven years on something that's important to you, then even more so. Solomon spent seven years of his one precious life on this earth, building the temple of God in Jerusalem, bringing honor to God. But the second half of that verse says that he built the temple in seven years, but then it says, but Solomon spent 13 years building his own palace. It says he spent two times as much time in his life dedicated to his own honor and status and wealth and comfort as he was dedicated to the honor of God. And that verse becomes symbolic. It becomes a turning point for all the rest of what we read in the stories of Solomon's life after that point. You just find example after example of Solomon seeking more and more items and more and more wealth and more and more luxuries to try to fill up what began to feel empty in him. And the more he tried to fill his life with stuff, the emptier he got. And by the time that Solomon got to the end of his life, it wrecked him. It wrecked his life. It wrecked his family. Solomon wrecked the country of Israel because of this. And there's a couple of verses in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes that kind of tell the story of this ending of Solomon's life. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes has long been associated with the wisdom of Solomon, what he learned over the course of his life. And this is what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, reflecting the lessons Solomon learned by the end. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. I worked hard for this, right? Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon had tried to fill his life up. He tried to fill that emptiness, and he got to the end of his life. He got to the finish line of life and looked back and realized he had wasted his life. And man, I do not want to do that. I do not want to find myself in that position someday where I am at the finish line of my life on this earth and I have run hard and I have run as best as I can in one direction with my life only to look back and go, I ran in the wrong direction. I don't want that. And I know you don't want that. And I don't want that for you. And here's Jesus gathered with his disciples and the crowds around him on the Sermon on the Mount going, isn't life more than that? Is not life more than these things? And Jesus asks his disciples this, and he acknowledges with them that if you don't know the answer to this question, you will worry about many things, and you'll probably worry about the wrong things. But as he discusses this with them, as he teaches his disciples about this worry that will come from this, it's not just an internal feeling. It's not just something that happens in your heart. Because while Jesus is interested in what happens in the heart and the soul of your life, he's not only interested in that. Jesus is also interested in the decisions that we make in the lives that we lead, the priorities we serve, the communities that we build. And so he spells this out for his disciples and for us what this will mean. And almost at the end of this passage that we read today, he describes this. So this is Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus says, So do not worry, and he starts here, don't worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And then he says, For the pagans run after all these things, right? That's the, that's the external activation of the internal attitude. If you're worried about it, you will chase it, and it might be the wind that you're chasing. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You'll just chase, and you'll chase, and it'll be a chasing after the wind, and you'll get to the finish line. You'll go, I never caught it. I ran in the wrong direction. I wasted my one precious life. All right, I brought along a little visual that I want to share with you. 
So raise your hand right now. Tell me, have you ever seen a hamster wheel? Have you seen a hamster running on a wheel? Raise your hand. Have you seen that? Isn't that kind of fun to watch? They just go and they go. They don't get anywhere at all. All right. So somebody, and apparently a lot of somebodies, thought it'd be a really fun idea to build human hamster wheels. Have you ever seen a human hamster wheel? If you ever want to find something really dumb, you know where to look for it? You go on YouTube. That's where you find this kind of stuff, right? I love it. So I want to share with you a little video right now of some people running on a human hamster wheel. Really helpful illustration. Let's run that video right now, can we? So here's the guy who's running on a hamster wheel in a park. This guy's like, I'm running. This is okay. His buddy jumps on. Hey, let's see how fast we can go. And they go and they're doing it together. One of them gave the example. But the first guy realizes this isn't such a smart idea. So I think I'm going to get off this wheel. Whoa, that was careful. Ow! Oh, boom! Trashed. Yeah. Okay. Here's the really scary part. That's like 30 seconds, right? I think it was like 27 seconds or something. You can find videos like four, five, 10 minutes long of people doing this in parks and they fall down on their head. The, the, the hamster wheel trashes them and they go, maybe I'll try that again. And they get up and go over and over again. And, you know, it's kind of funny in a, you know, me sort of way. I think that's kind of funny. But here's the thing. Don't we do that? Like, don't we do that? People have said that the definition of insanity is, trying this, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so like you run the hamster wheel, it drops you on your head, you go, maybe I'll try it again, maybe different this time. Or we chase after stuff that we think is going to provide meaning, value, joy in our lives, and it leaves us empty. So you go, maybe I just need more of that. Maybe I'll just do that again. And we just run this wheel and we chase this wheel. We don't get anywhere. How do we get off that wheel? I think the key to getting off that wheel is actually in one of the other questions that Jesus asked in this same passage. And I think that when we get the answer to this question right, crazy as this might sound, the whole meaning of life question will basically take care of itself. And this is how Jesus gets to this other question. He's talking to his disciples about the worry that they experience and tells them not to worry. And I can just kind of imagine Jesus out there, like on this hillside, teaching the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, and a bird flies overhead as he's teaching this. And he goes, look at the birds of the air. And they all look up, look at the birds of the air. And, he's, and he tells them, you know, they're not chasing stuff. They're not on the hamster wheel. They're doing what they got to do to eat. They're finding bugs and worms, whatever. But here's the thing. They don't store up in barns. They're not trying to build up and treasure up treasures on this earth. And yet your heavenly father feeds them, takes care of them. And then he asks them, are you not much more valuable than they? And maybe as I read that passage, you just kind of breezed right past that question. It's easy to do. It kind of gets stuck in the middle of a whole bunch of stuff. But I think this is the question at the heart of it all. Do you know how valuable you are to God? Because this is the question that revolutionized my life when I was a high school student. So today we're celebrating confirmation. We've got our 10th graders who are right here. And just a little bit later in the service, they're going to be standing up as a part of their confirmation. And they're here on this day to say, as a part of this journey of learning and community together, they want to confess and say, I believe that Jesus is Lord that Jesus really is life, and that I want to spend my life following him. And a part of that process of coming to this point is getting an answer to this question settled. Do you know your value to God? I remember more clearly than I remember most things in my life when I was in 10th and 11th grade. I remember I was at that point in life where I was trying to figure out what's the direction of my life going to be like, where do I go from here, what's going to provide value to my life, what makes me worthwhile, all that kind of stuff. And I was chasing all kinds of things. I was on the hamster wheel without knowing it. I was chasing all different kinds of ideas, probably chasing girls too, to be honest. I was chasing directions in my life that I thought would bring me as much wealth and comfort as I could possibly get down the road. But I knew, you guys know, 
Like, this is never going to do it. That wasn't going to do it for me. And it was at that point of tension, let's call it anxiety, let's call it worry, trying to figure that stuff out, that God finally reached my heart with the gospel that I had heard for years in my life, that I finally broke through to me, that I was so valuable to God, that God loved me in such a way that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to die for me and raise Jesus again from the dead to open up a new world for me and everybody else. And when I realized that I mattered that much to God, I realized nothing could ever add more value to my life than that, right? Like my meaning tank, my value in life tank was as full as it could ever be and other good things could happen. But it can't get fuller than that. You can't climb Mount Everest higher than it already is. I was at the top. That's all I needed. And probably, honestly, more important to me even than that was not that I couldn't add more to that, but that nobody could ever take that away from me that I didn't have to play the comparison game anymore, and we all play it. We think about it being an adolescent thing, or a high school thing, but we play it all our lives long. And I realized I don't need to play that game anymore because it doesn't matter who's better than me at anything, who's this or who's that, or what I've been or what I've done or where I've gone. Because God made a decision about my value for Jesus' sake. Nothing could ever take that away from me. And that gave me a security that could never be shaken. And I realized at that point that I wanted to spend the rest of my life following Jesus. And I wanted to seek after his priorities. And I wanted to run after the kingdom of God instead. Or the other choice was I could get back on the hamster wheel and try the big old wheel of crazy all over again and see how it worked that time. But I'll tell you what, when you know that you have been loved and forgiven, and I knew I needed plenty of the forgiveness too, when you know that you have been loved and forgiven by the God of heaven and earth for Jesus' sake, it'll do the trick. It'll knock you right off the wheel. But getting off the wheel isn't even the hardest part. You can get knocked off the wheel. A lot of us get knocked off the wheel from time to time. We realize how crazy it is. What's the trick? The trick is staying off the wheel. The trick is not jumping back on again. That's even harder. And you know what it is that will keep you off the wheel? I think what will keep us off the wheel is running in a different direction. Because listen, I believe that human beings were made to run after something. We were made to pursue with our lives something bigger than ourselves. We were meant to give our lives to something. And if we don't find that thing that is worthy of the life that God gave us, we'll probably jump back on the wheel and run and run again. And this is exactly what Jesus said right after this passage. Here at the end of our reading, this is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus had said, don't worry about these things. The pagans, they run after these things. They chase them. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then he said, so, but seek first run after, pursue first his kingdom, God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You're going to spend your life chasing something. Chase this. Run after, pursue this. Let me tell you a couple stories that I think maybe help illustrate this a little bit. First one, these are both true stories also, by the way. I have to say that now, don't I? The first story is about a, a Christian guy, not a part of this church, part of another church actually in another part of the country. He was a guy who had also been successful in his career. He was a regional vice president in a large company, and he worked well, and he worked as a Christian in his company. He worked with integrity and with ethics. He treated both colleagues and clients alike with compassion, created value in this world by means of his work. And outside of his work life, he also wanted to find a volunteer role. He wanted to serve his church family and try to help his church family serve its mission. And he found a role serving on a team with some other men and women in their parking lot volunteers. They were a pretty big church, big enough to have a big enough parking lot that they needed some parking lot attendants to try to help traffic flow. 
And this guy thought, and I think the other people on the team must also have thought, that the good news of Jesus that was being proclaimed and taught at their church was important enough, was life-changing enough, that they didn't want people being so infuriated at not being able to park that by the time they got inside, that they'd be so closed off in their heart they couldn't hear it anymore because they'd be angry from being outside. So there's this team out there, right? And they're standing in the parking lot and they're out there directing cars into the right lanes and the right, right parking spots. And you know what? In the spring and in the fall, that's a cushy job. That's a beautiful job, right? Maybe some summer mornings also. And he was out there on some beautiful days. And he was also out there in pouring rain, ice storms, blizzards. He's out there. And then in his life, his cancer reoccurred. And so for the second time, he had to step down from that responsibility. He just didn't have the physical strength to stand outside and do that job anymore. And then it happens that he finds himself in a hospice unit and he has to be sedated to control the pain that he's in. And one day, on a day that turns out to be a day with about one week left for his life on this earth, he's lying there, he's got his family around him, he's sedated and sleeping, and all of a sudden he starts to flail around. And I don't know if you've ever been in an experience like that, but it's very unsettling, or it can be very unsettling to watch that. And he starts to flail his arms around, and his family is disturbed by this. And then they notice, to their amusement, that he's doing this, and he's directing traffic while he's laying there in his bed. Now, I don't know, I've never been there myself, but I just have to imagine that whatever it is that rises to the top of your mind and controls your muscles when you are sedated and dying, that probably that's something that was pretty important to you, and that's something that provided meaning and value in your life while you've been alive on this earth. And this guy found meaning and value in life in a simple role, but it was what he was doing to point people to the good news of hope and life in Jesus Christ. Now, right here in this church, last week after worship, I had a conversation with a young woman who came up to me, and she had been impacted by the words of Jesus that we read in the Sermon on the Mount last week. We heard from Jesus as he taught us, warned us, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't store up treasure on earth that just wears out and breaks down and people can take it away from you, and it'll break your heart. Instead, store up treasures in heaven. Store up treasure, store up treasure the kingdom of heaven because that will never wear down and never break and it won't break your heart. It'll last forever. So store up treasure in heaven. This young woman was impacted by those words of Jesus that we heard last week, and she came up to me after the service and told me that she was a sophomore in college kind of at that point in life where you're really making some decisions about, am I going to go this way with the direction of my career and my life and the investment of my talents and energy for the rest of my life? Or am I going to go this way and do it that way? She's a very smart, capable, talented young woman, and she could do a lot of things. And one of her interests, one of the possibilities before her would lead into a field that was likely to be a fairly lucrative field for her, a research-oriented field, and probably would have provided a pretty comfortable life for herself and maybe a family down the road. The other path was leading to a field that if I told you what it was, honestly, you would know, not a very lucrative field. And yet it was one that really she felt was much more connected to the way that, that she sensed that God was using her to make her world a better place where her passions and gifts would, could be employed that way. And she said as a result of that passage last week, she knew which way she was going to go now. She didn't want to be on the hamster wheel doing this thing, trying it over and over again, but instead seek the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. That's not to say that lucrative fields or less lucrative fields are any more virtuous than one another. Being poor doesn't make you pure. The question is always simply a question of what are you going to do with what you have, whether you've got a lot of it or whether you've got a little of it, with money or control or influence or success. What are you going to do with it? 
Do you want to just chase the wheel? Do you want to just try to get more and more of it? Or get off the wheel? Get off the big wheel of crazy and seek the kingdom of God? Right? That's the question Jesus is asking here. Last week's passage runs right into this week's passage. Is not life more than these things? Because you have been invited for life in the kingdom of God. You have been invited into participation in the life and the work of God. You can seek after the kingdom of God instead. You can seek the kingdom of God with whatever money, control, success, status you have, whether it's a lot of it or a little of it. You seek the kingdom of God with it. You can run after the kingdom of God with the time and the energy that you have in your life with the gifts and abilities and passions that God has given you. You can pursue the kingdom of God with your heart and with your emotions, which will probably happen naturally if you do those first things, and it will create more of those first things also. Man, I'm telling you, life can be so much more than a lot of us ever imagine. Life pursuing the kingdom of God is a life that's full of courage and adventure and passion and meaning in relationship with the amazing maker of heaven and earth. Mind-blowing as that might seem. And yet so often we are willing to settle for less than that. We're willing to settle for less than that. We settle for temporary pleasures. We settle for whatever vision of life, for whatever tiny vision of life we see modeled in the world around us. We settle for that. There's a great Christian writer named C.S. Lewis had a little phrase for this that I've always found so striking. He said regarding this temptation that we are far too easily pleased. That makes so much sense to me. We are far too easily pleased. And so I want to speak to the confirmation students right now, but not just you. Speaking to all of us, because this is the life that you are being welcomed into. It is the life that we all live. Don't settle for less with the direction of your life. Don't be so easily pleased because you have been invited into the kingdom of God. You've been invited into the life and the work of God. And today, confirmation is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for all of us in the prayers that we're going to share in just a few minutes to RSVP yes to that invitation. And it's a yes that we speak here in this place, but it's a yes that we live out every place that we go from here. Every hour, every decision, every relationship that you build is saying, yes, I want to run after that, and I don't want to be on the hamster wheel anymore. So as we close this time of reflection on God's word and in the prayers that will follow later in the service and the ceremony of confirmation, I want to invite all of you as a part of this to pray for the spirit of God in your life, to RSVP yes to this invitation to the kingdom of God and to begin here in this place to walk it out every place that we go. Let's pray together right now. Good and gracious God, we believe and confess that you are good and gracious that you have loved us, not because of what we've done, where we've been, what we haven't done, what decisions we've made, but you made a decision to love us. And you've established our value and our meaning and our security in you. And God, I pray that you would so deeply root our hearts in that word of grace, that we would be knocked right off that hamster wheel, that we would find it so unattractive to keep chasing things that do not satisfy. And God, I pray that you would set our hearts ablaze that you would move us with the running of our lives to chase after your kingdom. God, give us your spirit that we might be drawn ever closer to you. We live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.